0: Listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at SojournFairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of His Word.
1: We're going to be reading um, from Psalm 120 today, so if you have your Bible, if you could turn to Psalm 120. If you don't have a Bible with you today, if you'd like to raise your hand, someone will bring a Bible for you. Um, If you don't have one at home, this is for you to keep. Um, And if you guys would please stand for the reading of God's word. Again, we're in Psalm 120. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Keter. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Good morning. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. It's good to gather with you. Happy Father's Day to there goes my water. Uh, happy Father's Day to the dads out there. Uh, this morning, my son Isaac, who's five and a half, said to me, Hey, have a great day. Talk good. Don't say any potty words when you get up there. So that was my encouragement this morning for Father's Day uh, from one of my kiddos. But man, I'm, I'm grateful to gather together this morning uh, as we dive into God's Word. Uh, I just want to take a moment just to pray for our time in God's Word, but also uh, to pray for uh, dads in the room. And I know Father's Day for some of you can be challenging for a lot of different reasons. Uh, Maybe because you uh, desire to be a dad and aren't currently able to be. Maybe because you've lost your father. Maybe because you have a a broken relationship with your dad. It can be a difficult uh, Sunday for you. And for others of you, it's a time to celebrate and give thanks for the dad that you have or the fact that you get to be a dad. And so I just want to take a minute as we begin our time just to pray uh, for all of us in that way. So would you pray with me? Father, we give you thanks that we get to come together this morning that we get to come and be together as brothers and sisters in Christ. God, as we look out on a beautiful day as it has been so far, the heavens declare your glory, the sky above proclaims your handiwork. God, you are holy and altogether glorious. And as we gather together each and every week, it's a gift to us to be able to reflect on that, to be reminded of it because we need that reminder week in and week out. And so God, we give you thanks that we have been able to be here today. And God, as we begin to uh, to open up your word, to, to walk through this psalm, I pray before we get to that, God, that you would just, uh, just encourage and bless the dads in the room this morning. God, I'm grateful for the men in this church that are seeking and striving to be faithful fathers. And God, I pray that you'd encourage them, that you'd equip them in that. I pray they would continue to strive in faithfulness to point their families to Jesus. And God, I pray that the The men in this room, that are dads would be quick to repent of sin before their wives, before their children, and model what repentance and faithfulness looks like. God, I pray that you'd help all of us to find our identity not in our being a father, not in desiring to be a father, but not yet there. God, I pray that all of us as men would find our identity in Christ. That above and beyond anything else, that we are beloved sons of you, the living God. So may we find peace in that, rest in that. God, I pray for the men in this room that are a part of this church that desire to be a father but right now are not able to for a variety of reasons. God, would you comfort them? Would you give them peace? Would you help them to trust you with the plans that you have for their lives right now? And God, I also just pray for uh, those of us in the room that maybe are struggling because we've lost a father or we have a broken relationship with our father or never really knew Our Father, God, would you give grace to my brothers and sisters this morning, that though this may be a time of grief, that we could also celebrate with those that are celebrating in a time of joy. Help us to be that kind of church, that we can rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. God, I thank you that now as we open up your word, that you would speak to us, your living and active word given to us. I pray this morning that you, by the power of your spirit, would revive our souls through your word, that you would give us wisdom as we open up your word this morning. God, would you shape us and mold us to be more like your son, our savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, a friend of mine uh, asked me to come speak at a retreat that he was putting on. And so I was driving to this retreat. It's in Huntington, West Virginia. So that's about six hours from Fairfax. And I had this idea. I was like, you know what I'm going to do on this road trip? I'm going to listen to every album from one of my favorite bands from start to finish. And then on the way back, I'm going to listen to every album from another one of my favorite bands all the way through on the way back. And it was awesome. I mean, driving down 81 and 64, singing at the top of my lungs to these songs that I've listened to for a long time. Listening to music like that for me has always been fun. It's fun because it's familiar. It's fun for me because I know the words to these songs. I can sing all of them over and over and over again. It's fun because it reminds me of different points in my life. And music does that for us, doesn't it? I think God's designed us that way, that music is a part of the everyday uh, part of our lives, whether it's music we listen to, or if you're a musician or a singer, maybe you play, but it's something God's created us to be. Every culture uses and has music as a part of it. And I'm sure all of us have songs from the past that when we hear them, it brings back a lot of different memories, Well, today we are beginning a summer sermon series, and we're going to spend the next few months going through some of what are called the Psalms of Ascent. The book of Psalms is the largest book in the Bible. There's all these Psalms, some are short, some are long, but what this is, it's the largest book in the Bible that's really a collection of songs. It's a song book. It's essentially a hymnal for God's people. Songs that were sung over and over again among God's people. And the Psalms of Ascent are a collection of songs within this larger book that were recited and sung by God's people as they journeyed from their homes to go to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. It's something they did multiple times a year. They would travel together as a family, travel together as a clan or a community, and journey to Jerusalem. And as they went... They would sing these familiar songs on their road trip several times a year. And they went to the temple because that at the time was the place of worship for God's people, the place they went to experience God's presence, where the holiness of God dwelled, where sacrifices took place. Well, you and I don't have a temple to travel to. In fact, Jesus tells us in John chapter 4 that true worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth. What Jesus does in John 4 is he's telling us, listen, at the end of the day, worship isn't about a particular place that you go. It's about your whole life. That every moment of every day, we have opportunity to worship God. The temple of God isn't central to your worship any longer. And here's the reason, because Jesus is the true temple. Jesus came to fulfill everything that the temple was meant to be. That everything that we look to for the holiness of God and the the satisfaction of His righteousness is found in Christ. And what that means now, if you are in Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus, if you've placed your faith in Him, believing that He is who He says He is, and He came to do what He said He came to do, to die in your place and rise again from the grave then this is where worship is focused now, not on the temple, but in Christ. So we don't have a temple to travel to anymore, but all of us are still on a journey. All of us are sojourning. To be a sojourner is to be a traveler, a person who is just passing through a place that is not your home. It's a common biblical word that God uses to describe that in reality for people around and in And amidst God's people and even for us today. Because see, the reality for all of us is this world that we live in is not permanent. It's passing away. We are all on a journey. And our hope and desire as a church is that we would help one another to journey together to Jesus. Jesus. See, this collection of psalms that we're going to look at over the summer are called the Psalms of Ascent because it was a going up. Jerusalem was higher than most other places that God's people lived in. And so it's these psalms and these songs that were sung as they literally journeyed up to a higher point. But these are not just useful for an upward journey to the temple in Jerusalem, they're useful for the journey with the upward focus towards God, God who is high and lifted up. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul talks about this. He says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, that I've perfected my life, that everything's fine and good with me. But what he says is this, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. See, these Psalms of Ascent were familiar songs to God's people. They had sung them and recited them over and over and over again, and they did so in the midst of the craziness of life. They did so to rehearse grace, to quiet anxiety and fears on their journey. One author calls the Psalms of Ascent a dog-eared songbook. Do you know what it means to dog-ear a book, right? You fold over the corner of the page so you can easily refer back to it. This, this pastor saying this is a dog-eared songbook. These are songs they frequently went back to, to to remind themselves of the truths of who God is and who they are in light of who God is. In this case, familiarity fuels faith. And these songs for sojourning are still helpful for us today. Because we too are on this journey all along the way as we travel this road of faith in the midst of a broken world. We need direction. We, we need encouragement. We need to be reminded of who we are and where we're going. That this life and the circumstances of your life are not inconsequential or at random. That God has a purpose and plan for what's going on in your life right now. We need these songs of encouragement to help us to remember who we are and where we're going, because as we'll see in the psalm we're going to look at today, sometimes sojourning can be difficult. So for those of you that already know Christ, that you've already placed your faith in Jesus, my hope for you today in our time in God's Word and really all throughout this sermon series is that God would remind you of those two things, that He'd remind you of who you are, that He'd remind you of where you're going. And that for some of you, that that'd be through encouragement. For some of you, it'll be through correction. But for all of us, it'll be in love. And for those of you that don't yet know Jesus, I'm glad that you're here this morning. Maybe you came on your own. Maybe a friend invited you to gather with us this morning. But I'm glad you're here. And my hope for you is that you also, as we walk through this, would see that this is an invitation for you. An invitation to join us on this journey as we walk through these songs of sojourning and that God would reveal himself to you. That he would reveal himself to you all the more and enable you to see and believe that your only hope in life and death is the one who came to seek and save the lost, Jesus. All of us need him. And so with that, let's dive into Psalm 120 this morning and may God bless the preaching of his word today and as we walk through this series over the summer. As we get into Psalm 120, it's important to see something here. The psalmist writes in a way that really uses uh, first-person singular pronouns and adjectives, things like I, me, and my. But as he says those in that way, it doesn't mean that those are just for him. These are truths for all of us. See, life with God is both singular and communal in nature. We experience God and walk with God individually, and we experience God and walk with God together as a community. If you are in Christ, God saved you as an individual, but he saved you into a community, into a family of brothers and sisters. And so this psalm declares the perspective of one worshiper in the things that he's experiencing in his life, but as he does that, he declares truths and realities that are important and relevant for all of us as we seek to walk with God. Remember, this is a song sung by and recited by all of God's people as they journey to the temple. I want to highlight this because you and I live in a hyper-individualized culture. A hyper-individualized culture. We, we live and move among people all the time, yet right now, in 2019, loneliness, at as, as its highest level it's been, maybe in forever, we're constantly surrounded by people, but we often live lives as if we're just by ourselves. And we sometimes think that the world is just about what's going on in our life. We forget that we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. But when we realize this, that we're a part of something bigger than ourselves, that God is in control, that he has a plan for our lives, it not only shapes how we relate to one another, but also shapes how we relate to God. And as we'll see, it's especially important in light of the content of this particular song for sojourning. As we get into verse one, the author makes a statement that really provides a a simple heading kind of statement for this psalm. Look at verse one again. It says, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Three simple things right here. A simple heading statement. I was distressed. I called to the Lord. He answered me. There's something really helpful for us in this. It was in the midst of his distress, his anxiety, his oppressed state, the adversity that he was facing, that he called out That he cried out, he shouted out loudly. This is not a quiet voice or a non-emotional request. There's desperation in his plea as he cries out. But look, he didn't just call out to anyone. He calls out to the Lord, to Yahweh, to the God and King, creator and sustainer of all things. And this teaches us something about prayer. There's no pretense in his prayer There's no posturing in his prayer. The the writer doesn't come and say, God, look at all the good things I've done for you. He doesn't use fancy language to try and explain himself to God or ask for something. He just says, I cried out to God in my distress and he answered me. And we can learn something about this in our own life as we come before God. This guy's in a bad spot and he calls out to the living God with an expectation that he will hear and answer. So let me ask you, When you pray, and I hope that you do, that you come before God and know that you can come before him in prayer. When you come before him in prayer, do you come with this kind of expectation? Do you believe that God will answer? And you may think, well, how do I know if I'm praying with expectation? How do I know if I'm expecting God to answer? Well, expectation comes from believing God, from taking him at his word. It's, It's a childlike faith. If you've been around kids at any point in time, you recognize like they, they're very uh, willing to ask for anything. There's not a lot of pretense with kids. It's like, can I have this? Can I have that? Can we buy this? Can we go do that? Can we do these things? It's just a constant asking of questions and making requests. They, they have a faith. They have an understanding. Well, if I'm going to want something, then I need to make it known. I need to express that. We have the same opportunity before the Father, that we can come with a childlike faith. We can come in freedom and confidence, knowing that he's good, knowing that he's faithful. Now, that doesn't mean that God's going to answer what you ask for or request in the way that you necessarily want. There's an old Garth Brooks song where Garth Brooks gives thanks for God's unanswered prayers. God doesn't not answer his prayers that are prayed by his people. He just may not answer them the way that you want him to. God's always working, always answering, always working in the midst of his people's life. He isn't Aladdin's genie. He isn't a cosmic ATM. We have to remember who our God is. He's the one who made everything out of nothing, who holds everything together, who rules and reigns in perfect providence and sanctifying sovereignty. That's who our God is. He's not aloof and disconnected and unconcerned with the world or the details of your life. And he may not answer our cries and calling in the way that we want, but he will always be present and attentive. Just like a father doesn't always give a child exactly what they ask for, neither does our good father who is perfect in all of his ways. But he's always at work for our good and his glory. Man, if we just even stop here, I, I want us to be a church that... That whether we're in distress or things are going well in our life, that we are persistently and expectantly praying, believing that God has our best in mind. So what is causing the distress of this particular prayer's life? We see the content of his prayer in verses 2 through 7. Look at verse 2. It says, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. He prays to be delivered from lying lips and a deceitful tongue or a slanderous tongue. Now, he isn't praying for personal sanctification, for personal growth. He isn't saying, God, I'm the one that's lying. I'm the one that's deceiving. Would you help me not to be doing those things? Now, those are good things to pray about. (laughs) If you struggle with lying, if you struggle with being deceptive. What he's praying for is to be delivered from those around him who are lying. Those around him who are deceiving and slandering. The people that he finds himself around are marked by this. They're they're speaking against him. They're speaking against his people. They're speaking against his God. Have you ever been lied about? Have you ever been slandered? Has someone ever said something about you or to you in a hurtful way? It, It hurts when that happens. It's not fun. You can see why he's in distress. I, mean, I don't care how spiritually strong you are or how spiritually mature you are. When someone speaks falsely against you, when someone tells lies about you, it, it, makes, you feel, it makes you feel puny. It makes you feel powerless. Almost, a, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. How am I supposed to defend myself? Am I supposed to defend myself? It just leaves us in a weird place. the psalmist is feeling that, and he's bringing it before God. And in a moment of prayerful reflection, he asks this question. And this teaches us something about coming before God in honesty. He says, what shall be given to you? What more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? He wants to know, like, God, are you going to do anything about this? Is there a consequence for the actions of those that are lying and being deceptive in this way? What are you going to do? He gives an answer in verse 4. He says, This is what will be given to you, lying and deceitful tongue, a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. This was a, a tree that they often made charcoal out of that worked really well to light a big fire. Do you see what he's doing here? What happens when we use hurtful words? They're like arrows. What happens when we lie and deceive and use our language to tear people down or to get our own way? James chapter 3 tells us it's like a spark that sets a forest ablaze. What the author is telling us here is that when you do these things, when you lie and use your words in a hurtful way, the consequence for liars and slanders and deceivers is repayment in like kind from the hand of God. You may not be able to make those things right in your life right now. Maybe someone's hurt you in that way or used their words to tear you down in that way, to lie about you or to you, but you can trust in God. His judgment awaits the liar. His judgment awaits the one who stirs up trouble with their words. And so I hope two things happen in you with that reality. One is that it brings you peace, knowing that God is sovereign and justice will be had. But I hope it also serves as a warning for you. That you would not allow your speech to be marked with deception. That you would not use your words to tear down another, whether through gossip or slander or lying about them. Because God takes that very, very seriously. May he lead you in repentance in that right now. And so the psalmist is in the midst of this. He's bringing his real emotions before God, saying, God, what are you doing? I, I feel distressed. I need deliverance from this. Are you going to do anything in the midst of it? And then we come to verses 5 through 7, and he says, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long had, I have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. We learn something interesting here about living life in a broken world, from someone who's seeking to faithfully follow God. He says, "Woe is me," because he sojourns in these two places, and these are real cities, real places. But he's using them metaphorically. He's making the point that he's living as a stranger in a strange land. That this place is not his home. What he's doing is he's praying a prayer of lament, sung. By someone living away from Israel, living away from the promised place that God set aside for his people. Maybe this psalm was originally written in the midst of exile. But the reality is, if you are in Christ, or if you're a part of the kingdom of God, you are a sojourner, an exile. The Apostle Peter tells us that in 1 Peter chapter 2. This place is not your home. Your identity isn't rooted here anymore. Philippians chapter three tells us that if you're in Christ, you're now a citizen of heaven. And so we find difficulty in the midst of that. See, why is he woeful about this? Because there's a weariness that comes, a weariness that comes from living in a place and among a people that are set against God and his kingdom. Do you ever feel that way? It's exhausting to live here at times being bombarded constantly with the the mantra and the, the little mini sermons that our culture preaches at us, telling us where to find our identity, telling us where to find our hope, telling you about where you fall short and how you need to measure up. That's exhausting. It's difficult. I mean, it's okay to admit that living life in a fallen world is hard. It's okay to admit that. We see that in the psalmist. This is where he is. He's weary from sojourning in a place that isn't his home. He wants to be with the king. He wants to be in his perfect kingdom. That's what he means by wanting peace. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. I mean, it's a word that means way more than just the absence of conflict. A lot of times when we hear the word peace, we just think, well, we're at peace with one another. There's no conflict in play right now, but the Hebrew word shalom has a much more far-reaching definition. It means wholeness or unity. It means, it means absence of conflict, but so much more than that, it's the blessings of God, that everything's perfect in perfection the way that God designed it to be. So that kind of peace, that kind of shalom is only possible with God. The psalmist desires it, but the people around him hate it. He wants shalom. They want war. They want control. They want division. This tells us something else that's really important for us to understand as we walk through this psalm, as we walk through this series. It tells us that the lying lips and deceiving tongue are not just about the author as an individual. It's not just that people are lying about him and to him. It's much more far-reaching than that. It's about the message that's communicated by culture. See, there's a common lie in our world that's continually communicated to us and has been since the beginning. And it's this, that you are good on your own. You are good on your own. And if we place that lie in the context of religion, it comes out as you are able to be good on your own before God. If you try hard enough, If you perform well enough, if you check all the boxes off and do all the things that you think God is calling you to do, if you're able to present all of those things before God, then God will accept you. And if we place that lie in the context of irreligion or humanism, it comes out as you are good on your own and don't need God. You're the sovereign ruler of your life. You need to actually free yourself from the expectations of others including God. But this lie, in either form, is individualistic at its core. The belief that the world in some way revolves around you and your actions, that the primary focal point of your life is not others, and certainly not God, but is you. I mean, no wonder these people the psalmist writes about don't want shalom, but war, Because they're seeking to assert their own kingdoms. They're seeking to assert their own will on life around everyone around them. They defend their self-sovereignty and advance their self-interests. And this plays out in our world today. We see it on a macro level. Global and societal conflict happening all around us. And we can look and see, oh, we see selfishness. We see self-focus. But it happens on a macro level because it plays out before us on a micro level in our individual lives. It manifests itself from the time we're born and struggle with things like sharing and obeying authority. And it continues in our lives as we make decisions as adults, making decisions in our life out of self interest in order to self preserve, to self promote, to self protect, to just focus on ourselves. And where does this lie come from, this deception come from that says that you are the center of your life, you are the center of your world? It comes from our sin, it comes from our rebellion against our God and King, and it comes from Satan, the father of lies, who in Genesis chapter 3 said to our first parents, you don't need God, you can be God. See, all of us can be tempted towards this lie. Whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, all of us can be tempted to believe this lie and orient our lives around it. But what happens when we do that is that the immediacy of our culture, the desire to have everything super fast and super quick mixed with the weariness of this life, whether it's the mundane parts of this life or the really difficult and disastrous parts of this life, it can lead to a leaky faith, to pursuing a life without God, that we slowly start to drift away, that we slowly start to pursue this lie and the things of this world and buy into the fact that maybe, just maybe, I can do this without him. I know I struggle with this at times that when things aren't happening the way I want them to happen, when I'm even praying, God, I believe you're going to answer me, but I'm not seeing you answer in the way that I want you to. Maybe I'm just supposed to do this on my own. Maybe I need to do this on my own. I'm going to start to take that on myself and see my world revolve around me that when my preferences aren't met, my desires aren't met that I demand justice for those that have wronged me. But here's the thing. When you and I drift away from God or we outright disregard Him, we've forgotten a key truth about this life, that all of us live life before God. It's the Latin phrase, coram Deo, that all of us live before the presence of God. And Psalm 120 is a song sung on the journey to the temple to worship in the presence of God. It was, was, along with the rest of these psalms, a reminder that there's no place or space that we can go that God is not. He is holy. He is the one true sovereign. He rules and reigns over everything, and He is God, and He is good. And we can trust in Him, and we can follow Him, but we can't run away from Him. He is always present, always at work. See, Psalm 120 can feel harsh. It can feel like a blunt song. This doesn't seem to end with a lot of hope. But it's a song of honesty. It's a song of lament. Lamenting is something that we could practice a whole lot more of as God's people in a broken world. Actually being sad over what's going on around us. Actually being broken for the brokenness of our world. Acknowledging that this is not the way that things are supposed to be. That's where the author is. He's in distress over the brokenness of the world. He's in distress over the disunity and self-focus and unloving nature he sees in the world and that he sees in himself. He groans in the now and the not yet. He's lamenting because he's come to this realization that apart from God, there is no hope for rescue. There is no hope for relief. Not just from the world, but from ourselves. See, he's going to the temple, he's singing this song, but it's when you and I recognize by God's grace and the help of the Holy Spirit, when we come into the realization of who God actually is, in all of his holiness, and all of his perfection, when we actually see that and acknowledge that and believe that, that the mantra of this world, the lie that it tells you that you're good and nice, that you're able on your own, we actually see it for what it is, an empty lie that leads to death. It's when you see God for who he is that you're able to actually see yourself rightly before him. in all of his holiness and all of our imperfection. And it's then and only then that we realize that we also need to be delivered from lying tongues. Whether it's of others or of ourselves. Like we said at the beginning though, we don't journey to a temple any longer We don't go to this place to to know the truth, to experience some kind of relief. No, the good news of the gospel is that the truth has come to us. He's come to us as one of us to rescue and redeem us. John chapter 1 verse 14 says this, And the word, talking about Jesus, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came to be the temple for us. Then we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says of Himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. What this means is that we need Jesus. He alone can deliver us from all of our distress. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2. Speaking of Jesus, again, it says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus doesn't speak with a lying or deceiving tongue. He is the truth. He embodies truth. Peter goes on and says when he was reviled, when speak, people spoke evil against him, when they spoke falsely against him, what, did it, what does it say? He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Why? Because of what he came to accomplish. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Friends, Jesus endured in truth on our behalf. He knows what it's like to be in the world, but not of it. Jesus knows what it's like to be lied about and to. He knows what betrayal is like. Judas sold him out for 30 pieces of silver to be crucified. And his close friend Peter denied him three times, saying, I don't know that man, I have nothing to do with him. Jesus knows what it's like, and he came to rescue and restore through his death and resurrection out of it listen, you will betray someone in your life. You will be betrayed. You'll be betrayed by the lies of this world. You'll be betrayed by someone close to you. There is no one better to come to then than Jesus, who knows what it's like and brings relief and healing in the midst of it. He is our ultimate hope now and forever. The good news of the reality of what Christ has done and what he will bring about is that when he comes again, lying and deception will be left outside of the kingdom. Listen to Revelation chapter 22, verses 14 through 15. The apostle writes, Blessed are those who wash their robes, so they may have the right to the tree of life. They may enter the city by the gates, washing our robes, that we're being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. you've come to Jesus. And then he says this, outside of the gates, outside of the new city are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. In the fullness of the kingdom of God, lying will be left outside because Jesus will make all things new. And so what are you and I to do with that now? As we wait for him to come again. What are you and I to do in the midst of the brokenness of this world now? We do what the psalmist does. We cry out to God to deliver us. Listen, there's always a way that leads out of distress. And it begins with turning to the deliverer. Whether that's for the first time in your life or for the thousandth time in your life. It begins with turning to the deliverer. See, when the psalmist calls out to God in his distress, when he asks, this, asks him to deliver him, he's practicing something that all of us need to do in the midst of our life. He's practicing repentance. He's turning away from his sin. He's turning away from the lies of this world, and he's turning to God in faith. As one author, one pastor writes, he says, the first step towards God is a step away from the lies of the world. It's an acknowledgement in faith that this world is not our home. It's a cry for help in the midst of it. But you and I also need to see that repentance is about leaving something, but it develops into an arriving at the greatest thing. That as we turn away from the lies and the deception of this world, that we get to turn to God and we get God. We get Christ, our greatest treasure. And so let me ask, have you done that? Have you turned away from the promises, the empty promises of this world to God to find your hope and your peace and your life in Him? Are you doing it? It's not a one-time thing. It's something we have to continue to come before God and say, "God, help me to turn away and not believe what the world's telling me, but to trust in you, even if I don't know exactly what you're up to right now." I've shared this before. My family likes to go to baseball games. If you've been around for a while, you probably know that. Outside of Nationals Park, though, there's this interesting little building. There's a trapeze school outside of Nationals Park. Like a school where you learn to be a trapezist. I don't know what the right word is. But and you can watch people, you can watch people fly from bar to bar and do flips and all the fun things. There's a big net, and it's all in the open there. And you watch people fly back and forth and practice this art. And it's crazy, right? Like somebody. Let's go of something that's perfectly good and steady to fly in the air and hope to grab onto another bar on the other side of the little netting area. And life right now can feel like that sometimes, like we're in the midst of a trapeze act. We're ready to let go, we think we can let go, and as we fly in the air, we find ourselves in this in between place like, I hope I can grab onto the next bar, I hope I don't just fall. They can feel uncertain at times. I'm not sure what's going to happen. But here's the difference for us. The difference for us is when we remember who God is, when we remember what he's up to, that our God is bringing redemption, that he's bringing restoration in our life, in our world, in and through Christ. When we remember that, we can persevere in faith. That even when we find ourselves in the midst of uncertainty and difficulty, we can know that God is at work and then he will see us all the way home, even though the road can be treacherous at times. Here again, like we saw in Ruth, life is joy and grief intermingled together. But what Psalm 120 reminds us of is that though life is a journey through a broken world, we can find hope along the way. We can find hope in the midst of the heartache and difficulty. We can find hope because we live before God in his presence, and we can come before him over and over and over again, crying out to him, knowing that he hears, knowing that he answers, knowing that he desires to deliver. Go back with me to verse one, just for a second, as we close out here. The psalmist writes, in my distress, I call to the Lord, and he answered me. Do you See what we don't learn. It says God answered, but we don't know exactly how he answered. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the apostle Paul says that God is a God of all comfort. And he comforts us with a comfort so that we might comfort others in their affliction. But comfort isn't a relieving of all the difficulty in our life. Comfort doesn't mean that everything gets fixed and is made better and right right now. Comfort is peace. It's that inner peace that God gives us because we know who he is and trust him in the midst of this life even if we don't know what he's up to. You and I can have peace in God because we know that he delivers. You can have peace in God right now no matter what has happened, is happening, or will happening because you know that your greatest deliverance has already taken place or will take place in and through Jesus. And because our deliverer has come, God's inviting you now He's inviting you to bring your tension before Him. He's inviting you to bring your brokenness. He's inviting you to bring your bitterness. He's inviting you to bring your betrayal, whether you've been the betrayer or been betrayed. He's inviting you to bring your deception. He's inviting you to bring your warring and rebellious nature and, and, and the words that you use to tear down, the words that have been used against you to tear you down. He invites you to bring all of those before Him and in hope, leave them there. But trust Him to walk with him, to have faith that only God can bring about the redemption and restoration that you need in and through Christ. So let's be a church that encourages one another towards that, that uses our words not to deceive, that use our words not to tear down, but use our words to build up, to remind each other of the truth of the gospel, and to journey well together until Jesus returns or calls us home. Psalm 120 and all of these songs for sojourning invite us to practice a long obedience in the same direction. That's what the life of a disciple is, continuing to move forward in the same way, knowing that our God will come again. Finding our hope and help along the way, not in ourselves, not within the resources within us, and not in the empty promises of this world, but finding our hope and help in Jesus The king who has come and will come again. Friends, follow him now. He will be faithful to the end. We're going to come forward now and take communion. And communion is a means of grace given to us by Jesus. It's given to us by Jesus to help us to trust in him today. To trust in him today as our deliverer as we journey through this life. And we practice it every week. We come forward every week to take communion together because every week we need to be reminded Every week we need to be refreshed in the reality of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us. That in Christ and him alone is freedom and forgiveness and life forevermore. And so as you come forward this morning to eat the bread, a picture of Jesus' body broken for you, and to drink the cup, a a picture of Jesus' blood shed for you, may God give you grace to throw off the lives of the world, those lives that have been said about you, to throw off and lay down deception in your own life. May God give you grace to persevere in faith, knowing that he hears you, he cares for you, and he will come again to make all things new. And for those of you that don't yet know Christ, I'm so glad again that God brought you to gather with us this morning. I'll just ask you not to come forward to partake of these elements Instead, I want to invite you as you sit in your seat to take Christ this morning, that you turn to him in faith, that you'd cry out to him right now, God, deliver me from my sin and save me. And if you want to know what it looks like to know Christ and follow Christ, there's a bunch of people in this room that love to journey with you in that. That's why we're here, so we can help one another to walk faithfully with our Savior. For those of you that will come forward, there's tables in the front or the back. Come forward whenever you're ready, tear off a piece of bread, take a cup to drink, and what Christ our Redeemer has done for you will be spoken over you today. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this time to come before you, to receive from you your word. And God, I pray that you, the God of all comfort, would comfort us in the midst of our distress. God, would you deliver us this morning wherever we need deliverance. And I pray that you lead us to repentance where we need to repent. Lead us away from lying. Lead us away from the lies of this world. Lead us again to faith in you, our faithful one. God, I pray that you would deliver us today. May we find peace and experience peace in you and you alone. And as we do that, may we go out to the world around us to make much of the name of Christ. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together this morning. Root us in you. May you be the anchor of our souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at SojournFairfax.com. Go in peace.